sake. So it's my honor to be able to share with you this morning. We are in the book of Genesis in our study uh, today. Genesis chapter 2 is kind of our launch verse, and then we'll kind of be all over the Bible. So today's a good day if you have your bulletin and a pen. You might want to write a few references down. You'll be able to go back if you want and review the message. You could do that on Facebook uh, or YouTube, or um, we always have the messages available on the back table afterwards in um, audio forms, uh, compact discs. So uh, any way that you want to do that. <clears throat> if you need a Bible, just get the attention of the ushers. They'll drop it off to you. And why don't we just pray uh, and ask God to bless our time in his word together as we begin. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord, for uh, your great love for your church. We thank you, Lord, that you're an ever-present help in our trouble and that you're a God who's near to us in all that we call upon you for. And, Lord, as we've gathered here this morning, Lord, we know you're present. And, Father, we believe this morning that you know each one of us. You know what we've brought in here. You know what our needs are. And... Father, you're the one that can meet those needs. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would be God for us this morning here. We're not worthy, Lord, but we're so needy. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would just bless uh, this time, bless second service for your namesake, Lord. Be with your people. And I pray that you would give clarity and power to your word. For we delight in you, Lord, and we know you delight in us. So bless this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, our verse is verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. I'd like to talk to you guys this morning about this thing that's mentioned right at the beginning called the soul. Now we know the Bible teaches that man was created and that we were made in the image of God. And just as God is in three parts, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet those three are one, God has also made man in his image three parts. We are body, which is our physical medium, expression, that which is seen. Then soul, the inside, what we'll talk about today, and then the spirit, the part that attaches to God. And so this thing called the soul that we're told in the Bible that God created and breathed into man, this invisible thing, I'd like to talk about what it is. It's a word that we have basically thrown around and made into a lot of things. We've made it into a musical genre. You know, we say, well, that's soul music. We've taken soul and we've made it a part of the menu. We've said, well, that's soul food or, you know, that food touches my soul, you know, or, or something, my soul ice cream or whatever. And, and we've equated it in that way. We've also made it kind of like a, a, a moral type of thing where we say, well, that person has no soul, you know. And sometimes we use it in the context of relationships where we say, well, that's my soulmate, you know. And so we've kind of taken this word and we've uh, kind of expanded on it. We've used it in all kinds of things. But what is a soul? You know, I can't hold one up here and show it to you. There's no textbook that can point out the various parts and pieces of it so that we can study it. It's this amazingly invisible yet incredibly large thing that's created by God and that we all have. So what is the soul? I mean, the simple answer is very much that it's just you, that it's the real you. The word in the Hebrew that the Bible uses, the Hebrew word nefesh that's translated soul, is used over 850 times in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The definition of the word according to a Bible dictionary is that it's the soul, the self, the life, the creature, the person the appetite, the mind, the living being, the desire, the emotion, the passion. Under that, the sub-definition, it says, that which breathes, the inner part of man. Under that, the man himself, the person or the individual. Under that, the seat of the emotions and passions. And then under that, which this is my favorite by far, it's the integrated activity of the mind, the will, and the character. I like that definition, the integration of the mind, the will, and the character. What is, when we talk about man, what is the mind? Well, the mind is the center of the decisions. It's where we think. It's where we feel. It's where our values and our conscience come from. It's our mind. What is the will of man, this other part of our soul? The will is the center of desires, 
That is our appetites and the things that we want, what motivates us, our will, what we want. And then the character is the center of definition. And our character defines who we are as a person. And what's interesting about the character is that character is somewhat self-determined, but more so it's God-determined because he's the one that made us and therefore he's the one that really defines what our personality is, what our character was intended by him to be. And so when we talk about the soul, what we're talking about is the integration of our mind, our center of decisions, our will, the center of our desires, and our character, the center of our definition, and we're putting that into our body and all of that making up our single life. And so the body kind of attaches to this whole thing in that it is the expression of all those things. It finds the root of its appetites and desires in that. And so you have this whole thing that encapsulates the life of man, and we call it the soul. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, the soul is the aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of human beings. And so the soul is the deepest part of you and I. It's what influences and shapes the entirety of who we are. And everything that we are is a byproduct of our soul. Now, every one of us that's here this morning has a soul. It's been given to us by God, and it's what sets us apart from every other living thing. It separates us from the animal kingdom, from the plant kingdom. You and I possess a God-given soul. Now, if the soul that God has given to us is healthy, and it's operating the way that it was intended by God to operate, and it is what it is, then that's going to spill over. It's going to influence every part of our life. It's going to influence our relationships, our responsibilities, our finances, and the way we deal with money, our sexuality, the decisions that we make. Literally every part of our life is going to be what it is supposed to be and where it's supposed to be if our soul is in good health. But if our soul is not in good health, then that is also going to influence every area of our life and thus every part of our life will be somewhat out of kilter and sometimes even what we would say sick, you know, or broken or out of whack. So what is a healthy soul? What does it look like when a human being has a healthy soul operating as it should? Well, what it is is the harmonious integration of the mind, the will, the character, and the body. And what that looks like is that there is an alignment in my life between what I was made for and what I actually am. What I do and what I want to do and what I am versus what I was made to be by God. And then all of that is going to be seen. It's going to be expressed in a wholesome bodily disposition. It's going to reflect and what everybody sees, because that's what's going on on the inside. So I'll be characterized by peace, rest, I'll be satisfied, I'm productive, I'm whole, because my soul is healthy. At the same time, an unhealthy soul, or a person whose soul is disintegrated and things aren't right, that person, there's going to be a disconnect between what they were made for versus what they are, what they want to do versus what they do do and who they are versus what they try to put forward or how they try to portray themselves in the image that they have uh, created or that they're operating in. And an unhealthy soul where there's a disintegration, a lack of harmony in all of those things, that is also going to manifest itself through my physical body in the world that I'm expressed in. And it's going to manifest in ways of an unwholesome disposition. There's going to be mental issues like anxiety, depression, personality disorders, eventually irrational behaviors, addictions, mental illnesses. All of those things are going to be byproducts of a soul issue, something inside that's broken and not right. And so we look around the world today and we see a world that's filled with broken, sick souls, people that are out of harmony with what it is that their soul was made to be and what it was made to do. 
And so we'll see someone like a successful businessman, you know, and he's driving in a Porsche and he's playing 18 holes of golf early in the morning and you're driving down to work and watching this out of your car and everything on the outside looks like that man's got it all together. He'll drive from there to the shore where he'll get on his multi-million dollar yacht and you think, man, if I had what he has, then I would have the peace that I'm craving. But what you don't know is that man who on the outside looks like he has everything all together has to sip scotch throughout all of the day so that he doesn't think about the fact that he is overcome and overwhelmed by greed. He has an incapability to be grateful and have gratitude for the things that he has. And because of the hollowness of what's on the inside and the lack of peace that he has, he's pushed everyone away. And so there's a distance between him and his wife, him and his children. And that man, continuing in that state, will die anxious and alone, though he had the thing that everyone else thought that they wanted. Now, interestingly, you could have someone else who has almost nothing. In fact, maybe they're even in prison, someone like the Apostle Paul, or someone who lives with nothing more than a dirt floor. And they could have not even two pennies to rub together, not know where their next meal is going to come from. And yet that person can be an absolute perfect peace. Why? The difference is in the soul. One has a problem in their soul. There's misalignment. There's disintegration between purpose and practice, between desire and action. Those things aren't matching up values versus what I'm giving myself to. And that person is soul sick, though they look like they have it all together on the outside. And when we look around in the world today, we see that in every walk of life. We see it in employees and people who work. We see it in mothers and fathers and people who parent. We see it even in people that are Christians and serve in Christian ministries. There's a difference or there's a problem. And the problem with a damaged soul is basically that there's a disintegration between what I was made for, what I want, what I know is right and valuable versus what I do and the image and all of that that I'm portraying to someone else. Jesus said profound words in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 36. We all know the words. He said, what does it profit a man or woman if he or she gains the whole world yet loses their soul? Now, we hear those words, and immediately we think Jesus is talking about destination. Okay, if I have and possess everything on the planet, and I have the title deed to all of it, and yet if I end up in hell and I can't take any of that with me, then what good was it to have it in the first place? And there is truth in that application. But in Luke's gospel, the same words recorded of Jesus, but in a slightly different way, in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, it's recorded that Jesus said, he said, for what is a man advantaged if he gained the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? In other words, what Jesus is saying is that it's not just an issue of destination where it is that you're going to end up if your soul is sick or or dies or is in the wrong place. That's part of it. But there's an equally as great part of it that has nothing to do with destination, but everything to do with diagnosis. And what's the diagnosis? Is that you can possess and obtain everything that this world gives, but if it's not what the soul was made to live on and operate in, then you're trading the life of your soul in order to obtain, possess, or become those things which have no value and give no life, and in the process, you're losing your soul. You're dying inside. You're having, you're being, you're appearing, you're winning in the eyes of the world, but yet you know inside that your soul is eroding and dying. And Jesus asks the pointed question, what value or advantage do you have if you gain everything you're chasing after, but you do it at the expense of your soul? Literally, you can sell your soul in order to try to have something that can never bring your soul satisfaction and life. Amazing. For the ruined soul, the person who has lost themselves in order to obtain or be something they're not, 
where the will and the mind and the body are disintegrated, disconnected from God, and living at odds from the way that God made life in the universe to run, Jesus is saying that acquiring the whole world could not produce satisfaction, let alone meaning and purpose. And the truth of the matter is that we live in a world that is full of lost, sick souls. Now, the reason primarily that that is the truth is because we're all born into this world soul sick. See, if, like the Bible says, God breathed into man's nostrils and he became a living soul. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were cut off from that life of God and their soul immediately began to dry up. It's like if you chop the base of a vine, and then watch the leaves. There's still the appearance of life. There's still something that's flowing through them, but they've started to die immediately because they were cut off from the source. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve, and it's the, the, the condition that you and I are born into the world. See, the soul, though it is very much alive, it does not exist on its own. The soul needs a source. And when the soul is cut off from God, the soul is essentially dead, and thus it's going to try to feed on something. And when it tries to feed on something other than what it was made for, then it's going to be sick, it's going to be disintegrating, and eventually it's going to die. And thus we live in this world. Now, we understand that amongst the general population. We see it, we observe it, we live in it, we know it. But sometimes we think, well, that's not me because I'm a Christian. I've given my life to Christ. I've been born again. I know what it is to have his spirit inside of me and to be alive. But yet, if I'm honest with myself and I really think, am I whole? Is there integration between my mind, my will, and my character? Do I do the things that I want to do? Am I content with what I am? Do I know my identity? When I ask myself those questions, sometimes I say, well, even as a Christian, I have to be honest, I might be a little soul sick. I, I might even go so far as to say that I've got some personality disorder issues or maybe there's some mental illness, there's something going on, and I am yet a Christian. So why is that the case? Why do I feel that sickness or that my soul isn't whole even though maybe I do know the Lord? Well, some answers may be that we live in a day, an age right now, where our generation probably has more pressure on the soul, on our soul, than in any other time in human history. First of all, we, me and you, we probably live in one of the busiest generations that ever has been since the inception of the world. Because of the advent of technology and travel and the ability that, that, uh, that efficiencies have given us to multitask and to do more than what anyone else has ever been able to do, those things that have been put there for our help have actually become a stress upon our soul because we have to keep up with the busyness and the pressures and the pace of this life, right? I mean, if we have a job or a business or something that we're trying to produce in the world, that's taxing. It takes something from us. If at the same time we're trying to manage a marriage and raise up kids, if we're trying to keep contacts, answer phone calls and emails and text messages and keep things up on social media, if we're trying to keep up with our education and pay off our bills, our debts and our loans, if we're taking care of the things and maintaining the things that we have, I mean, life is extremely busy and the pressures can mount up on us. And the problem is that everything that we do, that we have to do, takes something from us. It takes resources, it takes time, it takes energy. And what we find happening to ourselves, at least I do, is that I go into soul debt. And what that means is that when something comes up that I have to take care of, sometimes if the energy or the time or the resource isn't there, I have to borrow that energy, time, resource from something else that needs to be done in order to attend to the thing that's the most pressing. And I find myself in this constant treadmill juggling act of trying to keep everything going in my life, knowing that I don't have the ability to keep it all together. It's the busyness of the time that we're living in, and it's part of the pressure upon our soul. Another pressure that we face in this day and age that we live in is the constant pressure of sin and temptation. And that's universal. There's not one of us, saved or unsaved, 
that doesn't have a sin struggle. We all have things that we're tempted by and we're all constantly wrestling off the things that our flesh is inclined to indulge itself in. But the problem is that when those things get the upper hand on us, they put pressure. In fact, they do damage and they destroy our soul. Sin sucks the life out of the soul. That's why Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And he said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as pilgrims and strangers, he said, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Sin sucks the life out of the soul. There's a famous passage. Jesus spoke it. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said these radical words. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, he said, cut it off. Because it's better for you to enter into life maimed than it is for you to go to hell with two hands. Getting their attention, he took it one step further. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, if you have a problem with coveting, with lust, with desire, he said, pluck out your eye. Because it's better for you to enter into life with one eye than it is to go into hell. Now listen, if Jesus was being literal in what he was saying there and not making a point, then every one of us would just have nubs, right? And seeing eye dogs. And we would be walking around here. Jesus wasn't being literal when he told us to do those things, but he was being radical. And what he was saying to us, essentially, is he was saying, kill sin before sin kills you. Because sin sucks the life out of the soul. And I can't tell you how often we, the pastors, that we get to actually see this happen firsthand. Someone will say, this is the decision that I want to go. This woman or this man is not the one for me. I, I, don't, I was deceived or whatever, and I'm going to go my own way. Or... There's a behavior pattern that they say, well, I'm doing this. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to continue with it. I'm managing. I'm keeping up my professional and personal life. It's not having a toll on my family. And we stand back and watch, and we see the toll that sin takes on people. And not only does it do damage, but sometimes it does irreparable damage. Sometimes it even brings to a point of early death. Sin is destructive, and it's a pressure upon the soul. On top of that... Another pressure that the soul faces is the constant attack of the enemy. There is a devil in this world, and he is merciless. And when we're down, he doesn't withdraw and say, well, I'll give you time to get up again. But he capitalizes on every weakness, every opportunity, every vulnerability he sees. And it's a pressure in the world that we face constantly. It's a pressure upon our soul. We also face the pressure of the culture that we live in today. The culture that runs on the mantra of materialism, consumerism, and externalism. And we're told by the culture that we live in that life is in the externals. What you look like, the clothes that you wear, the kind of car that you drive, how many followers you have on social media, the image that you portray of yourself to the world outside, that is where life is found. I read an article from the New York Post back in March. There was a young girl who lived in Miami, and she moved to New York City with the intent of living the sex-in-the-city lifestyle, as she, she uh, termed it. Now, funny, when I was writing that down in my notes, I just abbreviated sex-in-the-city, and I just wrote S-I-C. And I thought, as I wrote that, I thought, that's exactly what happened, is that she wanted to live the sick lifestyle. But her intention, her own stated intention, is that she wanted to become an Instagram celebrity. And so she moved to New York City and she started to buy expensive clothes and eat at expensive restaurants and travel around with the intent of taking photos of herself in these clothes at these places to build up an Instagram following. Well, she did it. She had a following in not a long period of time of 13,000 people that were intrigued with the lifestyle and who she had become. The problem was she stated that I was empty inside and that I had racked up $10,000 worth of credit card debt with no end in sight. She eventually left that lifestyle, moved back to Miami, began to live within her means, and she said that my quality of life has increased dramatically. One paragraph in the article, it says, as Instagram follow influencers show off the latest fashion trends and their exotic vacations, mere mortals are breaking the bank trying to keep up. 
According to Fashionista, you would need to spend about $31,400 a year to maintain the standards of physical beauty represented daily in our Instagram feeds. This young girl tried to satisfy the culture, but in the process, she emptied her soul. And there are many today in and outside of the church that are succumbing to the pressure of the culture that says that life is in consumerism, it's in materialism, it's in externalism, it's in the image that you're portraying of yourself, and it's sucking the life out of the soul. We hear and read more and more these days about mental health issues that people are facing. Personality disorders, anxiety disorders, depression disorders, uh, medications that people are taking for all of these things, All of what our society is today has put a pressure upon the soul and it's manifesting itself and we're seeing it happen all around us. The soul is disintegrating. Well, the question is, can a soul be fixed? Can a soul that is disintegrated or a soul that has become ill, can that soul be healed? And the good news is absolutely the answer is yes. That the same God who made it in the beginning authored it and gave it an intention. That God can still yet breathe into that soul and he can make it once again the thing that it was created by him to be. I remember the psalm, that famous psalm of David, Psalm 23, where David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And then that great phrase in verse 2 that's so full of hope. He says, for he restores my soul. David recognized that in God, the soul absolutely can be healed. But you ask the question and you say, how can a broken soul be fixed or made well? If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these things down. The first thing, when we talk about the needs of the soul, what does the soul need? The soul needs, first and foremost, to have its center in God. That just as those roots were cut off from the rest of the vine with original sin and the way that we were born into the world, because of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross in successfully bridging the gap between holy God and fallen man, you and I have the invitation and the ability to be rooted again in the right soil that can bring life back into our soil, into our soul. Our soul originated with the breath of God and it's made to be connected with him. In fact, the Bible teaches us that written in the soul of every human being, there's a longing and a desire to connect with God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says that he has set eternity in our hearts, that there's something in us that grasps after that thing that will ultimately be able to heal and satisfy our souls. I read this quote, it's just a, uh, um, it's, a, it's a better stated way of saying something that I've shared with you before, but it's that the soul's infinite capacity to need is a reflection of God's infinite capacity to give. The soul cannot be satisfied until it finds its rest in God. And just as a tree will continually be drawing from the ground that it's rooted in, so also our soul needs a source that can continually provide. And the only thing that can do that is the true and the living God. Everything else is just a temporary substitution that cannot last. And it's when the soul finds its source and its center in God that it begins to heal and to be made whole. Now, we could end right there. We could just call the worship team and close the service right here. And that really would be the answer. But it would be a little more cliche than actually productive and helpful if we want to see something happen inside of us, if we want to see something change. So what is it practically that being connected to God does inside of us that makes our soul well, that brings us into harmony with what we were made to be? What does God do inside of our lives? Well, first of all, what he does is he gives us identity because the soul needs identity. When Jesus was baptized, and he's the, the, the prime example, right, of the, of the life that we were intended to live, it says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. When Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water, the first thing that happened, it tells us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, 
It says that the heavens were opened and it says that the spirit of God descended upon him in bodily shape like a dove. There was something that could even be seen by the people that were there. And as that happened, there was a voice that was heard from the father in heaven. And this is what he declared. He said, this is my son, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. The very first thing that was spoken over Jesus, the Son of God, our example, was acceptance. I'm sorry, rather, identity. He said, this is my son. He told him who he was. Now, you and I, we need to know who we are. If we're going to be whole in our soul, our soul needs identity. We've got to know who we are. I gave the illustration on a Wednesday night several weeks ago Uh, If you were a Martian and you came and you landed on the earth for the first time and you've never had any contact with humanity or human life at all, and you landed in a desert and there was nothing but sand, and you walked for a little while and you happened upon an abandoned automobile, a car, sitting out there in the sand, you would have no clue what that is. Nothing to attach it to, no previous experience to kind of equate with what you're looking at to make sense of it, you would just see this massive metal with four round wheels, and you wouldn't know what it is or what it's for. And you'd look at it, and you'd see words written inside and handles and controls, and it would just be one big question mark because you have nothing to attach it to. You don't know what it is. But if the maker of that car were to come and meet you there at that moment and walk you through what it is and how it works, all of a sudden, the whole thing would make sense. Oh, it's for transportation. And this makes it go forward, and this backwards, and this turns it, and oh, and this, you can have music. And the whole thing would begin to make sense to you because the maker is explaining it to you. Well, you and I, we come into this world, and we have this body. We can see it, touch it, we can define it. But underneath all of that, we have this mind, and we have a will, and we have desires, and we have talents, and we have a personality, and we have this whole complex system that makes up who we are that makes absolutely no sense to us. Why do I think this way? Why do I like these things? Why am I smart in this area and a complete moron in this area? Why do I love this type of person, but I can't relate with that type? Why is all of this here? And it's kind of like we're a Martian coming into our own life saying, what is this for? And it isn't until a person comes into contact with the living God who made them, and they begin to say, who am I? That God can begin to say, ah, good, I'm glad that you asked. This is the reason your personality is wired that way. This is why you like this and don't like that. This is why you have this talent and this desire and this affection that you've had your whole life. What you wanted to do is for this thing that I made you for that's going to happen at this time. And he begins to explain it. And so you ask the question this morning, you say, well, who am I? Well, if you're a Christian, you belong to him. And in that you belong to him, you've come to the one that can explain to you who you are. Colossians chapter 2 The Apostle Paul says in verses 9 and 10, he says, For in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. When you're not in God, then you have to find or create an identity for yourself. When you're in him, he can explain to you who you are. He makes you who you are. It's an amazing thing to see what's going on in the world today with people trying to find and or create their identity. They're ordering off a small menu. My wife and I, yesterday, we, um, we planned it for a little while, but we rode our bikes from Hopewell Junction all the way to New Paltz on the rail trail. And, we, and it's really not a big deal. You go, whoa, but it's like this flat thing. It was leisurely, conversational. It was like going for a walk for three hours. It really wasn't like a big deal. But it was nice. It was fun. We had a great time. But we were sitting there. We beat the rain by one minute. We were undercover in New Paltz, and then boom, it unfolded. It was perfect timing. It was awesome. But as we're sitting there, we're just sharing a cup of coffee, and these three girls came out. And if you, you know, you're familiar with New Paltz, you'll understand. But 
um, they, they came out from one shop and they walked over. And as they were there, there was one uh, sunglasses, multiple piercings, um, crazy clothing, you know, the, the, the kind of just nothing wrong with any of that, just what it was. And, and, then, and then she saw my shoes and I was wearing the Vibram five fingers, you know, the, the, the shoes that look like gloves, basically. And, and everybody loves those, including me. They're my favorite. I'd wear them here if I was allowed to, you know. And, uh, um, and, and so she's like, oh, I love those. You know, how much did you get those for? You know, where are they from? And can I see the, can I see the soul? And, you know, and, and so I'm showing. And, and then she grabbed my foot to see the soul. And it was a very, very firm grip. I'll just leave, put it there. It was, it was a firm. And I realized that she isn't a she. She was taking an interest in more than just my shoes, you know, and <laughs> and there, and the, but you know, and, and that's fine. You know, I was very polite. I was kind. You know, and the whole thing, and 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 really, like, you know, it, it wasn't like this ew, sick, you know, kind of kind of a response. It was more of like, like this is the world that we live in. Is that people are so grasping for their identity that when they can't find it, they're going to make it, even if it doesn't make any sense at all. I'm just going to order off the menu, throw a dart at the wall. That's who I am. No, that's not who you are. You are made in the image of God, and he made you to be what he made you to be, and it's in him that you'll discover what that is and nowhere else. The soul needs identity, and it gets it from God. The soul also needs acceptance. What's the second thing that God said to Jesus when he rose out of the baptismal waters? He said, you are my son, and then he said, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. The first words, identity and acceptance. Now, Jesus would need that to carry him through. Why? Because he would be rejected by everyone else at some point along the way. And he needed to know at the beginning that he was accepted by God. You say, okay, that's a great point, preacher, but I ain't Jesus. And quite frankly, I struggle to believe that I'm accepted by God. You are accepted by God but it's because of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He's made us that way having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of grace. Do you realize that because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That when we come to God through the person of his son, he looks at us with the perfection of Jesus Christ and we are met with acceptance. God accepts you right where you are on the moment that you get saved. One of my favorite encounters that Jesus had that's recorded in the Gospels was that with that man Zacchaeus. Remember that short little man? He was the outcast that hated everybody and everybody hated him. He was a Jewish defector that became a Roman tax collector so that he could just live his life in independence and isolation from all others. But he was curious about who Jesus was so he climbed a tree and from a distance saw him coming, and when Jesus met Zacchaeus underneath that tree, he looked up and he knew who Zacchaeus was without any formal introduction. He said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm going to eat at your house today. He front-loaded acceptance when he met with Zacchaeus. And the result of the ensuing relationship is that Zacchaeus was saved and changed immediately. See, here's my problem. Here's why I struggle with acceptance. Because I don't feel like, God, you can really accept me because I'm not like Jesus Christ. You say you want me to be like Christ? Well, I'm not like Christ. So, Lord, I believe that you tolerate me until you change me. And then you'll accept me when I become what I'm supposed to become. It doesn't work like that. But God, wait a minute. 
if you want me to change, then are you just calling me to yourself so that you can change me? Well, you don't really accept me then. If what I am isn't what I'm supposed to be, and yet you're taking me, then you are just tolerating me. I know this sounds a little confusing, but if you think about it, it makes you understand why acceptance can be a hard thing to grasp. But listen, understand this. It's the very nature of his acceptance that changes us. You say, how so? Well, how was it with Zacchaeus? Jesus met with Zacchaeus, right? And when Zacchaeus saw and experienced the acceptance and the love that he had from God, it immediately caused him to shed all of the facade of what he became. God dealt directly with the Zacchaeus that he created, and Zacchaeus was set free. And so the change that happens in our lives comes as the result of experiencing his love and his acceptance when we meet with him. It's not that, oh, he'll accept me when I change. No, 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 no. The world has changed us. It's twisted us. Being soul sick has made us twisted. But when we come to know him, his love sets us free. He enlivens and makes us what we were made to be and we're changed automatically by his presence. Not so that we're acceptable. It's what he does. It's one of C.S. Lewis's books. I think it might have been in The Four Loves. Don't quote me on it. But he talks about how there was a group of three friends and one of them died. And when one of them died, the other two were grieving because what they realized is that part of them died with this third person who died. Because that third person brought out elements of their personality that no one else could bring out. And I love that point that he made because that's what God does in our lives. When we know his love and we know his acceptance, it changes us. We let down our shields. It breaks our chains. We're set free in his presence and we become who it was that he made us to be in the very beginning. The soul needs acceptance. It gets it from God. The third thing that the soul needs is that the soul needs freedom. Now there's a paradox here. The soul needs freedom. Psalm 19, verse 7, it's an interesting verse. It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. In other words, part of the thing that's going to convert my soul from unhealth to health is the law or the commands or the boundaries of God. You say, well, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Isn't that kind of a paradox? That the soul needs freedom, but it finds freedom in law, in commands. Understand this. There are two different types of freedom. There is a freedom from external restraints. But there is also a freedom for living the kind of life that you're intended to live. See, freedom from external restraints says... Well, if I'm free, then I can drink as much as I want. I can spend as much money as I want. I can eat as much as I want. I can have sex with whoever I want. I can do whatever I want. And I'm free from all external restraints. And there is a freedom there. The problem is that when you're free from external restraints, you're inhibited from freedom for the kind of life that you were intended to live. So you throw off all restraints, you live however you want, and you say, well, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. Yes, you're doing whatever you want, but you're not free to be healthy, you're not free to have mental clarity, you're not free to feel innocence and freedom of guilt as you were intended, you're not free to feel honor because you know you're not living the kind of way that honor is intended to be lived out. You're not free to enjoy your marriage because your marriage isn't what it's supposed to be. You're not free in your productivity because you can't be productive living that way. And most of all, you're not free to quit doing the things that you're doing because you think you want to be free. So though you're free from restraints, you're not free to be the person that God made you to be. God wants you to have soul freedom. John Ortberg says it this way. He says, if our will is enslaved to our appetites, if our thoughts are obsessed with unfulfilled desires, if our emotions are slaves to our circumstances, if our bodily habits contradict our professed values, the soul is not free. The only way for the soul to be free is for all the parts of our personhood to be rightly ordered. Now, I've seen this with my kids. They have restraints and boundaries because they live in my house and I'm tasked and charged with raising them up in the way that they should go. 
And so there are things that they can do and things that they can't do. And what I see and sense in them is that there's a peace and a settledness because they're living within the boundaries that they know. We had an extended niece in our household last couple weeks ago, and um, she is just coming of age where it's time to train her what the boundaries are. And she was playing with grandma's phone, my wife's mom's phone. And grandma said, okay, give me the phone. And she looked at grandma and she said, no. And she kept on playing with the phone. Now, in my house, you know, that was like a record scratch. The music is playing, everything's going, there's harmony. And then we heard a little voice tell a grown-up, no. And it was like, you know. And the whole house felt it. Okay, there was this tension. What's going to happen? And everybody's looking, especially my five-year-old. He's like, you can do that? (laughs) That's even optional? But here's the thing is that the boundary was violated and you could feel the absence of peace. We were not intended to live without boundaries. God gives us these things, not because he's trying to restrain us from fun, but because he wants us to be free to live. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 44, he said, so shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty. See, we're free when we walk within the boundaries that God gives. That's why James twice calls it the law of liberty or the law that brings freedom in our lives. And it's important that we have it. God also wants us to be free from soul debt. Remember I talked about soul debt earlier in our study? This constant juggling of trying to get everything done with the pressures of the busyness and demands of this world. God sets us free from soul debt. I think of Jesus. Jesus never, ever had soul debt at all while he was on earth. I mean, he was pretty busy, I think. He would have had a lot of followers on Instagram and a lot of texts to reply to, you know. But for some reason, he was never pressured. There was one moment in Jesus' ministry after an extremely successful day in the Galilee. There were the thousands of people, and Jesus snuck away early in the morning for time with the Father. And after extended devotions, the disciples finally found him, and they said, Lord, What are you doing out here? The people are waiting for you back in the village. We've got to get back there. I mean, things are happening. There's momentum. Jesus goes, no, we're not going back there. They're like, what? This ministry, Lord, this is why. No, not going. That's not what I'm going to do today. There are other villages. We're going to go somewhere where no one's ever heard. We're going to start over in a totally other place. So he wouldn't let those demands that weren't from God be placed upon him from someone else. There were other times when unreasonable demands were placed upon him, and he said, yeah, we're going to meet these needs. There's 5,000 people here. There's no food. What should we do? Jesus said, feed them. What? Lord, that's impossible. How are we going to do it? No, no, no. This is God's will. He's going to provide. And so it is for you and I. There's times we need to learn to say no. That text message, that email, that phone call, that can wait. This doesn't need to be done right now. It's not what God wants. It's not what he prescribed. There's other times when God will ask us to go above and beyond and he'll provide miraculously the things that we need. But connected with him, in fellowship with him, there's freedom from soul debt. He wants us to have that. Oh, there's so much more. We're almost out of time. The soul needs impact and purpose. God didn't make us for nothing. He made each of us uniquely and individually to fulfill a specific purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says that by grace we've been saved through faith that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not by works lest anyone should boast. And then he says this, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God made us to do something and be something, and it's in him that we discover what it is. There's a, a quote from a famous theologian. His name is Drew Carey. He hosts The Price is Right. He said this, he said, hate your job. There's a support group for that. It's called everybody. He says they meet at the bar. Now it's funny, but it's kind of sad and certainly not true. But there's a research group that's affiliated with the University of Chicago. And they recently listed the 10 least happy jobs in the world and the 10 happiest jobs in the world. And what they found was that the 10 least happy jobs were actually more financially lucrative and offered higher status than the 10 happiest jobs. The difference? 
People in the happiest jobs had a higher sense of meaning, less money, less status, but a higher sense of meaning. The main thing you and I bring home from work at the end of the day is not a paycheck. The main thing we bring home from work is our soul. And work is a sound function we were made to create value. And so we were made for purpose with a purpose, but we find that purpose in God. Finally and lastly, the soul needs, and what God meets in us, is that the soul needs to be satisfied. I shared earlier with you that our soul's infinite capacity to need is a reflection of God's infinite capacity to give. And he is the only one that can satisfy. And here's the good news, is that he's willing to do that. In Psalm chapter 42, a psalm famous, held dearly by many of us, the psalmist says this, he says, As the deer pants after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? He recognized that he had a need, and it was a need to be satisfied on the same level of a deer that's panting after water, that, that, that's desperate for something to satisfy the thirst that's inside. And the psalmist could feel that desperation inside of his soul, and he knew that the source of that satisfaction would be found in God. He further expresses his frustrations in verse 7. He says, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your water spouts. All your waves and your billows are gone over me. In other words, the deepest part of me is crying out to the thing in you that can only satisfy that great need that I have. But yet your waves continually pass by me. It's not reaching me. It's not helping me. It's not touching me. Lord, help. He's crying out in his thirst. And he comes to the conclusion in verse 11. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, he says, for I shall yet praise him, listen, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Here's the wisdom of this psalmist. He said, My soul is thirsty. My soul is needy. It's languishing. It's famished. I know that there's one place, one source where this satisfaction can be found and it's going to be found in God and unless God meets this need, this need will be unmet. He says that he is the health of my countenance. Where does soul health come from? It comes from God and it comes from no place else. God gives you and I the invitation to find our satisfaction in him. In Isaiah chapter 55 Verses 1 and 2, the prophet says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. And he that has no money, come and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Hearken diligently unto me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. The water that he gives is freely available and he invites us to come to him. Jesus would say to a woman at a well in John chapter 4, he would say, woman, if you drink from this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give, you will never thirst again. Just a few chapters later, Jesus on the great day of the feast stood in the midst of the multitude and he cried out with a loud voice. It's John chapter 7, verse 37. He said, those of you that are thirsty, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And here's what he said, that out of his belly, out of the soul, out of the innermost, the deepest place is going to flow torrents, rivers of living water. And then it goes on to say that he spoke this of the spirit that he would freely give. The author of Revelation, John, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, he, he repeats the same call. He says, if you're thirsty, come. Come freely to him. He's the one that meets the satisfaction. As musicians come forward and as we draw the service to the close, I ask this question this morning for you sitting here, for you, the individual. I say, what is the diagnosis, the true honest condition of your soul? Whether you know the Lord or not, and I recognize, again, on a Sunday morning, I'm talking to two audiences. 
primarily, probably, predominantly, those of us that are here, we know the Lord. We've been born again. We're saved. We're going to heaven. Our names are written in the book. We know that. The other audience, probably some of you in a crowd like this, some of you that don't know the Lord yet personally. And I ask the question, I say, what is the, the, the truly your soul? Is it whole? Is it where it's supposed to be? You say, you know what, Pastor, I'm a Christian. I know the Lord. I've known him for a while. I'm walking with him. I've walked with him for a while. But if I were to be honest with you, if what I really am feeling and know about myself on the inside were really laid bare on the outside, the honest truth of the matter is, no, I'm not well in my soul. My soul is quite sick. It's quite twisted. Beyond probably what anybody else knows, besides maybe even I don't even know how messed up my soul really is. And you say these things and my spirit bears witness, but where do I find it? Why aren't I experiencing it? Why aren't I whole? What's going on inside of me? The answer might be the source from which you're seeking satisfaction for that thing that only God can meet. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Jeremiah says these words. He says, my people, speaking for God, my people, that's the Christian, that's you and me, have committed two evils. One is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the source. And two, they've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, the problem for many of us as Christians is that oftentimes we recognize that our soul is sick, but we're still seeking to heal it or fill it or satisfy it in something else other than simply knowing Him, walking with Him, being filled continually with Him. I've been power washing my deck for several weeks, and it's such a pain in the neck. Sometimes you dream about the things that you're doing you know, on the side constantly. And last Sunday afternoon, my wife took the kids and the house was empty and I stopped power washing long enough for a much needed Sunday afternoon nap. And as I was in that place between asleep and awake, uh, you know, on the backside of my, my, my slumber, I had kind of this vision in my mind, you know, of power washing. And I was thinking about, you know, what would it be like to try to fill a cup with a power washer? And you can't do it. Right? I mean, because, you, you know, it's counterintuitive. You think, well, I've got the tools. I've got everything I need right here in my hands to fill this cup. But no matter what, no matter how long you try, you are never going to fill that cup. You'll have water going through it, but you will not fill that cup because the force is just too much. And what happens is too often that Christians, we have these power washers in our hands, these things that stimulate, these things that promise such immediate, powerful satisfaction. The acquisition, the experience, the indulgence, the meal, the affair, the relationship, the money, the attainment, the coffee, whatever it is. And those are the things that we're putting our hope in that this is going to make my day or my week or my life the things that it's supposed to be. You know what? It's a power washer. And it can never fill the cup. And the experience of it cannot go on consistently. Because why? Because a power washer destroys a cup. That's a new game. Instead of rock, paper, scissors, it's power washer cup. And power washer wins every time. What's the answer? Ezekiel saw a vision of the river that Jesus spoke of. And he said that it proceeded as a trickle out from under the door of the temple. Just a trickle from under the door. The door, Jesus said, I am the door. The temple is the place where God's people meet with God. And there was a trickle. It wasn't power wash. It wasn't, it was a trickle. But as Ezekiel walked from that place of being in God's presence and moved throughout his day, he went a thousand cubits and he found that the water was deeper there than it was at the beginning. He went a little further, the water was a little deeper. He went a little further, he found that eventually the water was so deep, the river so wide, that it was more than he could manage, and he had to be submerged in it. See, that's the way it works with our God. We come into his presence. It seems as though, God, this can't work, this can't really satisfy, you can't, this is just a trickle. But by faith, Lord, I believe this is what I was made for, this is who you made me to be. And I sit before him. I breathe in his presence. I enjoy his acceptance. I let him love on me. I give him my day, my soul, my life, all that I am. 
And then as I move through life from there, I find that it gets deeper and wider beyond anything I could ask or think to the point where what Jesus said holds absolutely true out of my innermost being gush torrents of living water. David would finish Psalm 23 in Psalm 23 verse 6 by saying, my cup runneth over. That's what God gives. And so for the Christian today who says, my soul isn't whole, maybe instead of trading the well for the cistern, you need to trade the cistern for the well. Come back to God. Father, we just thank you this morning for these words. We thank you for your truth and your power and your ability to say these things to us. We recognize and, and confess, Lord, that without you, we are nothing. We, we can be nothing, that we're all together completely empty and alone. And we pray, Lord, that you take these words in the days of these constant pressures and these things that we're under, that you'd help us to see into the mirror of your truth and that you, as the great physician, that you would give us an honest diagnosis of the place where we are. And where we're broken, where we're disintegrated, where we're a hollowed-out form an image only, but under the surface, lacking all of what you made us to be. Lord, we ask this morning that because of Jesus and the cross, because of the blood and your mercy, that you would draw us back into your presence and that there we would find healing, that we would find acceptance, identity, freedom, purpose, satisfaction, life as you intended it. Father, we pray that you'd help us to set aside the things that we're hoping in and that we would trust completely in you, Lord. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you personally, that's on the outside looking in, but yet they know, as I knew, as we knew, that the soul is broken, it's dead, it's destitute. Oh, Lord, I pray for that person that today something they heard would be a seed in their heart. That they would hear the whisper of a Savior who died and hung on a cross to bridge the gap and form relationship between holy God and fallen man. To hear his words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your soul. And I pray, Lord, for the unbeliever here today that, Lord, you'd get a hold of their heart and that life would flood back into what you made in the beginning. That again, you would breathe into man's nostrils the breath of life. So take this message for what is needed. Apply it to each of our hearts, O oh God. May we be encouraged and blessed as we go forward from here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?